0: In the years since WCW was officially bought out by Vince McMahon in 2001, it's been easy to simply look back and laugh at some of the ridiculousness that went on during the company's final few years. Judy Bagwell on a forklift, the Viagra on a pole contest, and a tag battle over a record contract just to name a few. Despite the far too frequent ludicrous antics, it actually wasn't all bad for the promotion during their dying days. I'm cy for WhatCulture.com, and these are the 10 greatest things about WCW's final year. Number 10, two great rivals get one more match. It may not have been comparable to their Clash of the Champions 88 or Starrcade 89 matches, but that didn't stop Sting and Flair's battle on the final ever episode of WCW Nitro being a fantastic moment in pro wrestling history. Flair had been pivotal in getting Sting to that next level and to becoming a true main event talent back at the tail end of the 1980s, and in 2001 we saw the Stinger return the favour by giving Flair what was at the time described as one last hurrah. Doing the honours, Flair would tap out to Sting's painted Scorpion Deathlock on that final Nitro, and the pair would have an emotional post-match embrace that was the absolute perfect bookend to World Championship Wrestling's run. Number 9. Goldberg's Greatest Ever Match If you take away the smoke and mirrors of a hard-hitting, three-minute-or-less dominant squash match victory, Bill Goldberg has never been known to be the best in the ring. To demand's man's credit, he was never particularly positioned to have lengthy back-and-forths, and the formula of Goldberg running through an opponent in mere minutes was one of the most successful things that WCW ever did. When it comes to the genuinely great Goldberg matches though, only a handful really stand out. DDP at Halloween Havoc 98 was one, Bret Hart at starcade 99 was another, but the greatest match of Goldberg's career came at Full Brawl 2000, where Bill matched up against Scott Steiner in a No DQ contest. Despite the groan-inducing aspect of a Vince Russo run-in, Bill versus Scotty was quite the hoss fight, as these two jacked up sorts threw each other all over the place and genuinely beat the hell out of each other. And even better, it was the Big Bad Booty Daddy who went over here, which in turn further pushed Steiner as a legitimate main event talent, as shown by him dethroning Booker T to become World Heavyweight Champion two months later at the Mayhem pay-per-view. Number 8. Scott Steiner, Top Heel At the start of the 90s, Scott Steiner was part of one of the greatest tag teams in the history of the wrestling business. It was in 1998, however, that the split became official when Scott laid out Rick and joined the NWO. From there, Scott dyed his hair, changed his gear, started wearing wearing a chainmail headpiece and took on the glorious nicknames of Big Papa Pump, the Big Bad Booty Daddy and later Freakzilla. By the turn of the millennium, Steiner was right up there as one of the best all-round heels in the game. Scott Steiner with a live mic was always a dangerous time but he could also still go in the ring and the Steiner recliner was a dominant submission move. As the cocky prick who could legitimately beat your ass for a work or a shoot, Scott Steiner was pitch perfect. Number 7. Mean Gene doesn't give a damn. Mean Gene Oakland made a name for himself as a no-nonsense interviewer with a ridiculous quick wit and an unmatched ability to think on his feet. But the dying days of WCW saw Gene's no-nonsense approach amped up to 11. From watching him during that last year or two of WCW, it was clear that Oakland was well aware that the company was dying a death and that he was more than happy to say and do what he wanted. And for the watching audience, it was great. Gene was clearly at the F-it-all stage by that final year and he wouldn't hold back in throwing shade a wrestler's way. In particular, Mean Gene seemed to reserve a special sense of disdain for the likes of Jeff Jarrett and the Mike Sanders-led Natural Born Thrillers stable. Gene Okerlund had gone from firm, unfazed interviewer to The Savage, who relished any opportunity to lay a verbal beatdown on the heels of the day. It was mean Gene Okerlund, just not quite as we'd come to know him over the previous two decades. Number 6. A new emphasis on young talent. Stars like Jericho, Benoit, Guerrero, and even the Big Show all jumped ship to the then-WWF after becoming disillusioned with WCW's insistence on continuously spotlighting the same old faces. For 2000 and 2001, though, we saw WCW making a conscious effort to highlight fresh talent on its programming. Whether that was looking from within with someone like Booker T or Billy Kidman, looking at another promotion with someone like Lance Storm, or looking at WCW's power plant facility for Chuck Palumbo, Mark Jindrak and Sean Stasiak, WCW finally got its foot out of its ass to try and create new stars in its twilight year, even if it was ultimately too late to save the sinking ship. Number five, the cruiserweights tearing it up. Of course, part of what made WCW so great during the company's dominant period of the Monday Night Wars was in how it shone a spotlight on some of the most exciting Cruiserweight talents from across the globe. And in that final year of WCW, the promotion was still ridiculously entertaining when it came to the in-ring antics of their smaller stars. Three Count and the Young Dragons put on a series of brilliant high-energy, high-impact contests, and Rey Mysterio, Chavo Guerrero Jr., Kid Romeo, and more all made the most of their minutes on screen. We probably could have done without the belt, but the Cruiserweights, as a Collective remained one of the bright spots of a murky final year for WCW. Number 4. The infamous Bash at the Beach promo It was chaotic, it was crazy, it was prime latter-day WCW, but Vince Russo's worked shoot promo for 2000's Bash at the Beach pay-per-view was bonkers and got the wrestling world talking. Just for the sheer insanity of seeing Russo firing off on one of the biggest names in the history of the business, live on pay-per-view, this moment deserves a mention on this list. Subsequent years have seen Russo and Hogan both detail how this worked shoot was all part of some grand plan to bring in ratings, yet this all bizarrely backfired when Russo went off the unscripted script, and Hogan filed a legitimate lawsuit against him and never appeared on WCW television again. This was all just strangely surreal and a perfect example of the madness of WCW's last couple of years, yet it undoubtedly was massively entertaining. Number 3. That shocking simulcast Even though it had been its own worst enemy at times, it was still a sad, sad day when World Championship Wrestling aired its final ever episode of Nitro. But while the Final Nitro really was the end of an era, an end that would lead to Vince McMahon monopolising the industry for two decades, it also threw up the truly unthinkable visual of seeing Vince appearing live on WCW television. That Panama City held Final Nitro left Jaws agape when it opened with a promo from Vince McMahon. As Nitro and WWE Raw aired in simulcast fashion, WCW audiences were greeted by McMahon appearing live from the setting of that night's Raw. Considering the previous war between Vince McMahon's WWF and Ted Turner's WCW, that 26th of March 2001 night gave fans something they never thought they'd see, and the Panama City crowd would see Nitro closed out by Shane McMahon, revealing that it was he, not his old man, who was now the kayfabe owner of WCW. Number 2. Booker T gets his due as the decade rolled on, Booker went from one half of a legendary tag team to becoming a single star in his own right. The only problem was the former Harlem Heat member would have to navigate a minefield of poor booking and the god awful decision making to give him the GI Bro gimmick as part of the Misfits in Action stable. It took Hulk Hogan's infamous walkout at Bash at the Beach 2000 for Booker to finally get his chance to run with the ball. There, Booker T defeated Jeff Jarrett to become the new WCW World Champ. That was in the July of 2000, and Booker would go on to be positioned as one of WCW's top stars right through until the company was bought out by Vince McMahon in March 2001, to the point that the master of the Spinner was the WCW World Heavyweight Champion when WCW first made its presence known on WWE TV. Number 1. Lance Storm The hands-down greatest thing about WCW's final year? That's an easy answer. Lance Storm. Period. Having departed ECW, Storm's WCW debut came on the 19th of June 2000 episode of Nitro. Barely a matter of weeks later, the Canadian grappler had amassed a ludicrous amount of championship gold and was one of the most prominent parts of WCW TV. During that time, the one-time thrill-seeker picked up the United States title, the Cruiserweight title, and the Hardcore title, going on to rename the belts as the Canadian Heavyweight Championship, the 100kg and Under Championship, and the Saskatchewan Hardcore International title, respectively. Heading up Team Canada, Storm even got Got to mix it up at the top of the card as he had a couple of unsuccessful shots at the World Heavyweight Championship, at that point held by Booker T. Quite simply, you couldn't put on an episode of Latter-day Nitro or at times Thunder without seeing several segments centred around Lance Storm. One of the great what-ifs about WCW's dying days is whether or not Lance Storm would have been given the big gold if WCW had carried on. Given the trajectory of his WCW run, it seems like a no-brainer that Storm would have been the world champ sooner rather than later, but sadly, it wasn't to be.